Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome to Keywords in Play. I'm Molly Ann Butt, and today we have Dr. Brendan Keogh with us. Yay! Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. As I'm sure many of our listeners are already familiar with your work, but if they are not, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Sure. So, yeah, my name is Brendan Keogh. I'm a video game or game studies researcher at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia. Previously, a game critic and blogger, which you can probably find by searching my name on Critical Distance and finding various old bad takes from a decade ago. Um, Yeah, and I research the game industry, game making from, I guess, a labor and practice kind of point of view is how I'm mostly saying it these days. And before that, did a lot of textual analysis, did a lot of game criticism, a lot of work on like how we even talk about game aesthetics and all of that. Yeah. That's me. Awesome. So you have a new book out. Congrats. I do. Thank you. And we'll be talking about it today. It's called The Video Game Industry Does Not Exist, Why We Should Think Beyond Commercial Game Production. And it's just been published and it's also open access. So you can get it through MIT for a PDF for free. Yeah. Don't even have to pirate it. (laughs) Which we obviously uh, wouldn't recommend ever. (laughs) Libgen as... um, a site that us academics do not encourage Never us use to LibGen. Never no, use Absolutely. App, Always no. avoid LibGen. <laughs> so maybe we can begin with the title. I think you mentioned that this is slightly revised title from what it was originally going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I originally... Um, pitch to MIT Press when I first went to them with wanting to write a book was, I guess, probably much more boringly, which is why it didn't get up, was just the field of video game production, I believe, with a subtitle, which was something like video game making, I'm trying to remember now, video game making beyond, below, and before the game industry. So like the way I was conceiving of the, the book was really trying to account for everything else beyond, I guess, industrialized commercial game development, and not just accounting for everything else, but accounting for how commercial video game development is, I guess, in a deeply symbiotic relationship with non-commercial game development that a whole lot of people for ages have talked about. Hey, there's also arty stuff. There's also hobbyist stuff. Um, Anna Anthropy's Rise of the Video Game Zinsters laid that out very clearly a decade ago. So I'm not just trying to make that argument again, but instead trying to point out you can't have commercial video game development without weird hobby kids and artists and students and all this other stuff that underpins a creative field. So that's what I was trying to get to with that original title that MIT Press said was too boring. And then while I was working on the book and getting feedback from my colleague, Benjamin Nickel, who's another game studies academic at QUT, at one point in one of our discussions about what I was trying to figure out what I was actually saying in the book in an early draft, which is a lot of the work of, I guess, humanities academia is writing and then figuring out what it is you're actually saying in the writing you've already done. And Ben just said something like, really what you're trying to argue is that there is no video game industry, uh, that, it, that it doesn't exist. And I wrote that down in my notes because it was like a really cool provocation. And so when MIT Press came back to me to say, 
the title was boring, I was like, well, what about... I think I said, well, what about there is no video game industry? And at some point that shifted to the video game industry doesn't exist. There is, is a, like a passive sentence structure isn't a very exciting way to start a book title, I guess. So yeah, so that's what it became. The video game industry doesn't exist, which I kind of see very much aligned with book titles like... And Catherine Hale's How He Became Posthuman or Bruno Latour's um, We've Never Been Modern. Like these kind of book titles that are provocations. And you look at a book title and you go, what? That doesn't make any sense. And then you read the book and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I see how this sneaky academic kind of got me on a technicality <laughs> with their clever title. So hopefully I've managed to do that because obviously it's kind of an impossible claim to back up that the game industry does not exist. It obviously does exist. So... But I guess the the less cheeky version is it can't exist without all this other work that I'm interested in exposing. Mm, Or that it doesn't exist in the ways that we conceptualize it to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the way we conceptualize it as, I guess, this exclusively commercial space of activity doesn't exist. It can't exist as just the way we often think about it. We being, I don't know, we's kind of a a, um, straw man there. But I guess the way, I guess, popular discourses and policy and the industry itself frames it as existing obscures a whole lot of labor and identities and activities and subcultures that also need to exist for it to exist. So, yeah, I I don't know. It is also just a cheeky title to sell copies. Like that is also undeniable. But I think it's a, a, a constructive provocation as opposed to just an absurd statement. <laughs> uh, and I think um, what you've just highlighted answers a lot of why we should think beyond the commercial games, uh, beyond commercial game production. Right? Hmm. I think there are a couple of the key reasons there. And the way that the games industry, in quotation marks, is often <laughs> constructed. In your book, you call it this time in history of aggressive formalization. I, I think mm-hmm. that's useful to frame it in that way. But maybe let's start there, right? Let's go through that historical timeline of how we've gotten to this particular construction of the game industry. Yeah, for sure. And you've also just experienced one of the main challenges I had writing this book after I decided on the title was not actually being able to talk about the game industry anywhere in a book because I've just said it doesn't exist. So that was incredibly annoying. Um, <laughs> and now whenever I use the term the game industry in other writing, people just kind of point at it and laugh at me. So it's <laughs> a massive pain. Um, yeah, so I, so yeah, so that historical aspect that I try to outline in a book is, I guess, one of the central questions that I want to address in a book or that I wanted to figure out myself when I started the research project that led to the book is, why do we struggle with this in video games? Why do, and again, by we, I guess I just mean society, but why do we struggle to account for video games as a cultural form? Like, we can all say games are art, you know, as often as we want, but we still, there's still something different about games in how we talk about it, how policymakers talk about it, how they fit into museums and galleries, how they fit into arts festivals, how they fit into higher education. Like there's just something about how video games as a as a genre or medium are socially constructed that makes it hard to just account for them as just another art form, which I've always found really fascinating. And, and I think we often think about that in terms of, well, it's because it's younger, which kind of is and it's been around for like 60 years now it's not young anymore it's because it largely focuses on teenage boys which is still largely true for a lot of its outputs it's because it's interactive and weird it's because it's also technology there's all sorts of arguments for why that's the case but i was reading 
Casey O'Donnell has a 2014 book called The Developer Dilemma, also MIT Press book. And it's an amazing book where he does his ethnography at a large studio. And I think he also goes to a um, kind of an outsourcing studio in India that's working with this American studio. Really amazing, just ethnographic work. And towards the end of that book, Casey's got this really fascinating, weird chapter using actor network theory, where he, uh, which was all the rage in like 2014 when he wrote the book. But in that chapter, I think it's called The Networks of Inaccess. And he does this deep dive into the technology of the NES or the Famicom from the mid-80s and how it kind of, I don't know, I guess, I guess like constructs game making as something controlled by publishers, I suppose. You need you need access to the software development kit and only the console maker can give you that access. And I remember reading that and it both felt like it was written in a totally different era because this is before the rise of indie, the rise of unity, the rise of more quote-unquote democratized game development. And, and so its arguments kind of felt, on one hand out of date, but on the other hand, this really amazing snapshot of a different era of game making. So after reading that, I got really thinking about how can we kind of define this era of game making that Casey has really well articulated and what it has now become since then. And so I kind of started with his work and other historical work that I was reading, which like Graham Kirkpatrick and Melanie Swalwell, and it's not historical, but I guess Adrian Shaw and other people, all of whom have like really clearly articulated how kind of gamer culture emerged in around the late 80s and then became more and more intensified during the 90s, mostly through game magazines and these terms like gameplay and gamer and, and whatnot. And so I started trying to connect that to the historical stuff. I just talked about what Nintendo and Sega were doing in the 90s. And this is already a long-winded answer, but I guess I, I get to this idea of aggressive formalization as the deliberate and explicit closing off by particular corporate actors in the, in the video game field to make it very difficult to create video games that are perceivable as legitimate video games if you're not doing it in a commercial manner. And you can look at the kind of popular myth of video games around E.T. and Atari and the crash in the mid-80s, which, you know, is often told as Nintendo coming and saving the day after Atari let too many hobbyists and pirates, you know, release a glut of video games. And you can reframe, and, and that whole narrative has become a way, or became a way, especially in the 90s, to justify excluding hobbyists, excluding amateurs, excluding pirates, excluding any form of game maker that didn't kind of contribute to the profits of Nintendo and Sega and Sony and Ubisoft and whatnot as not real game making and so there's a historical argument there's like a political economic argument and i think all of this merges with what game studies people have been saying for at least a decade about what games are perceived as legitimate and what game players are perceived as legitimate especially feminist um, game researchers such as yourself so so i think there's like trying to draw together all these different threads to point out why we've got these long-lasting and ongoing challenges of even justifying video games as an art form because the industry itself worked very hard to exclude and delegitimize that work that is most visibly and undeniably artwork as opposed to just you know commercial entertainment products so we, we reached a point where we have very visible equivalents of marvel movies but we don't have visible didn't have visible equivalents of weird art house cinema or whatnot and so i guess conscious of how long this answer is now but when i talk about aggressive formalization that's essentially what I'm trying to get up. And that's so well put. And I think these long-winded answers are not long-winded and always very articulate, Brendan. I find like <laughs> that's often the thing, right? The most articulate people will be like, oh, you know, I'm just babbling on. No, it's really great to deep dive into this and pick it apart. So great. babble away. If, <laughs> if, <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> 
So I also like the way you've highlighted, I guess, this like what constitutes a real video game, mm -hmm. historical ties there, and I guess also the overlap between um, the points of, you know, what is real and authentic within other subcultures, like the music scene, right? Like a, mm. like a band and real music and being a real fan of the music or selling out. So this is, I guess, where it comes in using French names, right? Pierre Bourdieu's field theory and yep. the usefulness of that here. So mm -hmm. let's have a babble about uh, field theory. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, I keep using dead French dudes, which as like an Australian is a bad idea because I can't say any of their names. But like, <laughs> so apologies to the French listeners. But yeah, so Bourdieu, uh, who is a sociologist, has, well, for decades did amazing work on like kind of class and taste and distinction. And I think kind of, um, as far as I understand it from a, kind of Marxist background, kind of took these ideas of, I guess, capital and tried to ex extend it beyond economic capital. Not that Marx was only talking about money, I'm now very aware of, but also, you know, this idea of social capital and, and cultural capital. So very crudely, ideas of how, you know, the upper classes don't just perpetuate their dominance through having all the money and the means of production, but also through kind of defining society in a way where only they know how to act in society. So you can imagine... If you're working class and you go to a fancy restaurant and there's 20 different forks and 20 different knives and you're stressed out because you have no idea how to act. Whereas like, you know, for posh dude, <laughs> billionaire son goes and of course he knows what to do because he's been there all the time. So it feels like a very crude example of having social capital, having like a crude the, the ability to navigate society in a certain way. And he talks a lot about, Bourdieu talks a lot about like education and taste as aspects of this. But some of his later work, I think in the 80s primarily and a bit of the 90s, he moved and started looking at what he calls the field of cultural production, which within broader field theory, I guess, essentially like how do you talk about art worlds or art fields? So how do you talk about the field of poetry or the field of punk music or the field of game making as a field? And so how, well, how does it even become identifiable as itself a field and not just a bunch of people working in some other field. And so for Bourdieu, a field is kind of a constant tension or a clash between those who are kind of striving for the field's autonomy, i.e. the field actually being identifiable as itself a field, and those striving in the opposite direction towards the values that exist kind of outside the field in the broader field of the economy and political power. And so the easiest kind of example of that is, say, musicians who you know, just care about their art, man. Like, I don't care if anyone listens to this or if I ever get popular. If that's caring about the autonomous values of a field, just making good music, whereas caring about the opposite of the autonomy, which is, I think he calls heteronomy, is like caring less about making good music and more about making money and money being the primary value of that broader field of the economy. And, you know, we talk about this in layman's terms all the time when we talk about a band selling out or, um, you know, they only care about for the money, but don't really care about the art or what have you. So essentially the most powerful positions in a cultural field are the ones who get to define what is the autonomous, legitimate markers of success. And so I link that to that idea of aggressive formalization to say through the 90s, it was those dominant positions who most successfully determined the values of a good video game as having good gameplay, having realistic graphics, having a lot of kind of configurative action where the player is making important choices. All these things that are very connected to the gamer identity and kind of a, I guess, more 
hegemonic aesthetics of play that game studies and game critics have been unpacking for ages. But what we've seen since about the late 2000s, early 2010s, especially around 2012, is, I guess, those bottlenecks that defined aggressive formalization that allowed Nintendo, Sega, Sony, whatever, to dominate and to determine the defining categories of a field have become easier to circumvent. So we've got Unity, we've got Steam, we've got broadband internet. You can just make some weird little twine game, put it on your own website and someone can play it. Nintendo can't stop you doing that. You're obviously not going to reach as many people as Nintendo can. You're not going to make as much money, but you can still release, you know, Crystal Warrior Kesha or some other twine game. And people are going to play that and be like, this is clearly a good video game, but it's so at, a, at odds with what I have been told is a good video game. So what we saw was who gets to decide what the field is got radically challenged in the early 2010s and still is being radically challenged. And so I guess that's what I try to use. So when Bourdieu talks about fields, he talks about them as like a constant struggle, a constant, I guess, battle to define who is and isn't in the field. There's always those who are in the most dominant positions of a field, those who are seen as most legitimate. And there are always those who aren't seen as legitimately in the field who are constantly trying to get in and not getting in by changing what they do, but by changing where the line of a field is drawn so that their current positions are perceived as being within it. And so I think we saw that with especially like queer and trans developers in the early 2010s making a very clear, aggressive case for their games being real games, not being some other thing. Uh, they're like no we belong in the game field as well and you need to redraw this boundary so we're in it and that of course led to all sorts of radical tensions and gamergate and all sorts of things as you know the dominant positions tried to keep the lines where they were so i guess that's field theory is like the constant struggle to define a field is a constant struggle to define what the field is and who's in it and so when i found that theory when i started reading Bourdieu's work i'm just like shit this is what's been happening in games over the last 10 15 20 years this is exactly what we've been seeing going on and so it became a really valuable theory for me to try to I guess articulate that and try to not just say not just tell the story of what's happening in games but to have this kind of theoretically robust explanation of how this is this is how cultural fields work and what we're seeing in games now is that those other positions successfully to some extent being being heard or being legitimized within the field which makes it which is exactly why it's so much harder to talk about it as simply an industry these days because these positions have gotten that legitimacy that are clearly not industrial positions i'll stop there yeah <laughs> <laughs> good um <laughs> I had the moment reading your book where, you know, when it's like you've both come to something really similar as a conclusion, but kind of mm -hmm. like slightly differently or separately, because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, in my PhD, I'm totally saying like, oh, it's really important to look at the tensions and the sites of struggle, but just like completely different way into looking mm -hmm. at that. So it's like somewhat validating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so much of any academic field is just using different lenses to come to the same conclusions, I suppose, and which I think is always valuable and yeah, like reaffirming that we're probably right as well if, you know like Bourdieu for me is a lens it's just a particular magnifying glass I can hold up to the phenomenon and be like what's going on here and you can just as easily hold up you know feminist theory or queer theory or any sort of theory and you're going to come to different answers but like or, or you'll come to the same answers in different ways and yeah it's good yeah it is good <laughs> yeah yeah so we're talking about Bourdieu's term these newcomers but mm -hmm. I, I very much appreciate that you've also kind of like made a strong note that so-called newcomers, they've always been there, right? We've always been there. Yep. But there's a really interesting moment that you've traced here where we've got, for the sake of using Boudreaux's term, mm -hmm. um, described as newcomers or the people in the margins, right? The game makers on margins in the peripheries. Their voice or amplification or 
visibility as a more recent, I guess, more so in the last two decades, right, or decade and a half, is tied to the disorganization, tied to the platforms, which are now the holders that control the means of production and circulation. But also other forms of organization have been allowed from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess there's a few points on that. I guess like the on, the, on the newcomers point firstly, I think what's interesting there is that it's um these, these marginal positions are newcomers to the field insofar as have only kind of recently been perceived as legitimately within the field as opposed to um not games, not game makers out there somewhere. But yeah, they're not newcomers insofar as they have been doing this stuff for a long time or they've, all, like, they've always been there. They just haven't always been legitimate or legitimized. And so what's... I guess the kind of critical or maybe even cynical position that I try to make later of a book is that why have they become more legitimate in more recent years or in the last decade? And I guess the positive, exciting answer, which gets a little bit more technologically deterministic, is, well, thanks to the internet, thanks to broadband, thanks to all these new new software tools, it's easier than ever before to get your art directly in front of somebody. And that's exciting. Like, but, that, but again, that implies these people weren't doing stuff 20 years ago when we were just... it was much harder to kind of see them it's like oh but yeah now it's easy thanks to the internet but i think there's a more critical and again some might say cynical or pessimistic way you could look at it as well which is kind of capitalism especially for kind of creative fields has kind of restructured itself over the last 20 or 30 years to figure out how to capture the value of creative workers without actually hiring those creative workers into any sort of stable employment and so this is effectively the gig economyization of, of creative work or the uber drivering of creative workers and what that means it's a different way to think about what going indie means where you don't go indie because you're like fuck the man i'm gonna like forge my own pathway which again is a very art over commerce way of presenting it it's often people go indie because there's literally no other option in most places of the world the vast majority of the world doesn't have triple a studios so like your only option is to go indie and so when i talk about or when the other people i reference whose names i currently forget who talk about this idea of deorganization, capital has figured out how to deorganize labor in a way. Or, or what, like, instead of all of us going to the same factory and working on the same shop floor or going to the same AAA studio and all working in the one room where we might start talking about how much we're all paid or we might start talking about maybe going on strike. If instead everybody is an individualized entrepreneur relying on a platform like Steam or like Unity or like the App Store, it puts us all into, we as in, I guess, game makers, it puts us all into competition with each other rather than in solidarity with each other. So it's, I guess, a way to think of what's been going on, not just as um, liberatory liberatory of of game making and the game making field, but also as maybe just an alternative way capital has tweaked itself in order to figure out how to extract value from more more game makers through through platformization. And I think the way I frame it in the book is like a wider range of game makers have been given access to the means of production and distribution to game engines, to, to distribution platforms, but they still don't have ownership over those tools so what we see is like you know steam is going to take 30 percent off every game sale it has it doesn't matter if if i release a game on steam and i make billions of dollars because some streamer plays it steam's happy they'll take 30 percent of that despite not investing in the game at all if i release a game and i only make two thousand dollars steam's happy with that because they still take 30 percent and they didn't invest anything it's it's win-win for steam and that's just how platformization works it's just internet landlords essentially However, that all sounds very 
cynical and pessimistic. But at the same time, what we're seeing, and, and that's how more critical kind of creative labor people have long talked about this. But what I find exciting about games is, despite all of that being true, it is also undeniable that game makers have more power now than ever before to, I guess, find ways to resist those kind of those dominant structures and those those landlords of a field, the Nintendos and Sonys and whatnot. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that as these kind of expanding of a field has happened, we've also seen the first, the much more successful rise of game maker unionization movements, game journalism that cares much more about who's actually making the games, not just the games themselves, much greater pushes for all kinds of kind of diversity and whatnot in games. Like, all of this has only been able to happen because marginal game makers have pushed their own way into the field, despite still being dependent on these landlords, but nonetheless have been able to start conversations that you could not start if you were employed in a traditional AAA company. So so one of the main reasons unionization in the game industry never really took off before now is because if you just mentioned a union when you worked at some large company, you'd probably get fired, or, or at least you'd be afraid that's going to happen. Whereas if you're a um, disorganized indie developer, on the one hand, a traditional union is less useful for you because you can't really strike against Steam or strike against unity because they're not really your employer but you can talk about striking you can talk about unionization and steam and unity can't fire you because they're not your employer so it's like there's a positive side to it and so that's allowed indies and marginal developers to rock up at gdc especially around 2018 and be like hey y'all should unionize and actually get that kind of critical mass rolling in a way that the AAA developers feel more confident to be part of it so the industry or the field has been deliberately disorganized in a way to make it easier to exploit people but have a same time has opened up new potential pathways of i guess game maker solidarity and new ways of pushing back which i think are very exciting yeah hopefully that made sense oh absolutely but i'm also someone who's read it right (laughs) but i I think that was very clear and i think it is very exciting Mm. and kind of like a a novel insight there where it describes very well what's happening Mm. um and uh some of the quotes from interviews that you that you conducted really shed light on that right like the Mm. well you know i'm not sure about quoting someone here a bit that said I'm not sure necessarily how I would benefit from it because it's mm-hmm. like, but I'm going to cheer from the sidelines anyway for those who, who have a harder time for being able to speak up about this. If, you know, the ones totally. who are working at a AAA company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a really great quote in there. I think I named them, but I can't remember if I did. So I won't say their name now just in case. But they were like, yeah, running a Montreal indie company, a slightly larger indie studio. And they were just about how important it is to unionize. This is like 2018. So everyone, you almost have to say it's important to unionize. It's kind of the default thing you say, like everyone should unionize, blah, 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 blah. And then they kind of call themselves. I thought it was a really great moment of kind of self-reflection. This is like a studio director. And they're like, look, it's super easy for me to say that because I'm, I never really ha- I'm never really going to worry about a union kind of like, you know, breathing down my neck in the indie space. Like the indie, it's too fragmented. Like this isn't her words. This is my words. Like the indie space is kind of deliberately designed to make work a solidarity not work it's like just five person teams of mates and it often isn't a boss to unionize against so she was like yeah it's really easy for me to say it but then she's like because it's easy for me to say it and my colleagues in like AAA studios can't say it I should say it so so it was this really nice self-reflection of both I shouldn't get like applauded for saying unions are good because it's really no risk at for me to say it but at the same time because my other colleagues can't say it who do need unions 
I should say it. And I think it really perfectly captures what I guess I'm trying to articulate in that section of a book, which is like, yeah, the, the current unionization movement didn't start in AAA. It didn't start with large companies just magically one day deciding, hey, maybe we should unionize because there's been decades of people trying to start that and it's never gotten off the ground. But it's because of the increase of marginal creators, of indies, of whatnot, exactly the kind of people who exist in those positions because capital has put them in those positions to not have worker power. Ironically, it's them who have kind of been able to lead this unionization movement which is to me super super fascinating and something i think i guess not just game studies but maybe like labor organization studies more broadly needs to think about beyond i guess 20th century paradigms of how unions should work when we're all working in one big fordist factory to what does worker solidarity look like when we're all in when we're all gig economy precarious self-contractors and i think games provides a really fascinating space other organizers in other parts of the economy should be looking at to think about because it's a fascinating area. Absolutely. In particular, just questions around alternative workplaces that have really grown mm. in the last couple of years. And right? it's the working from home or hybridity. I guess the questions that have already been pushed around like in games, in the field of games where people are game devs but or game makers actually. Mm. We can jump back <laughs> into that that part too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, where, um, you know, they don't have a, a workplace to go to. And usually mm. it's like working in a cafe or something already. So maybe we should jump back a little bit and go sure. into the question of when you were asking people, are you a professional video game developer? Mm-hmm. And I guess the the tensions or the, the uncomfortableness with those terms. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so I guess the context of that is I remembered reading um, Adrian Shaw's article. I think it's like a 2013 article, like, do you identify as a gamer, which was a phenomenal article and like really like predates and preempts a lot of the research I was done, you know, after Gamergate about the gamer identity and how hegemonic and selective it is. And when you're talking about video game players as this kind of much, much broader set of identities and demographics. And so I was like, well, I, all Adrian did was just ask people, are you a gamer and see what came out of that. I was like, I could just also ask people, are you a game developer? So all of my interviews with game makers, I ended with, I think the two questions I asked were, do you identify, I don't think I even asked, do you identify? So I feel as, would you consider yourself a, I think I said a professional game developer. That's right. I said, would you consider yourself a professional game developer? Because at the time that I was asking, I thought professional was the interesting word to think about, not game developer. And I also asked, would you consider yourself part of the video game industry? And so in addition to being influenced by Adrian Shaw's article, the other thing that was really motivating that and motivating this, this entire project was looking at like surveys that the industry would put out like IGDA or whatnot being like this is who's making games in this country and I always was thinking who actually considers themselves legitimate enough to even fill out that survey in the first place and so I thought by asking people are you a professional game developer that would give me a hint as to whether or not they would fill out these surveys or not so at the time it wasn't for words game developer I, that I even thought would be complex but yeah people the way people replied some people had issues with the word professional other people had issues issues with the word game and other people had issue with the word developer there was definitely not with everyone to stress i think but like enough to be relevant people who didn't consider themselves developers because they might be in roles such as writing or music or community management you know and they saw development as a much more touching the game software kind of techie kind of role and and it is right like you know one of part of the historical baggage of games is its connection to computer science and IT and whatnot. And so video game developer very much builds off software developer as, as a term. We don't talk about music developers or film developers. Like there's such a clear tech world connotation of that word developer, which suggests certain 
forms of game making and suggests excluding others. So that's why I use Game Maker Forever Book. It just feels more neutral and inclusive. And then, yeah, so on one end, it's mostly just an easy shorthand. And I use it more so when I think the first chapter of a book, I guess, just to really push home that I'm not making this up. That it's not, you know, this isn't just some theoretical exercise to say what is the game industry and who are game makers or game developers it's not just some theoretical semantic exercise to be like it's actually complicated it's like no this is the actual lived experiences of people who consider themselves game makers is feeling some people who are clearly obviously contributing to the making of games don't consider themselves to be game developers or don't consider themselves to be part of the game industry and so these terms these words clearly have an exclusionary aspect to them that we need to think critically about and of course game maker does as well and every word does it's how words work but um in the same way we should all not be using the word gamer when we just mean video game player in in our writing we maybe should think about who we are and aren't including when we say game developer as well yeah and you've got a great response around this too right i think it was in the survey where someone was saying or responding to this question well i made two dollars on steam so yes but also i made two dollars on steam so no <laughs> yeah yeah and that was specifically in response to like are you a professional game developer and yeah it's like well the vast majority of people i spoke to perceived or interpreted professional as in makes money but then yeah how much money do you need to make to be professional um, and I think that just really nicely shows how I guess the historical legacy of aggressive formalization has show- has made being a successful legitimate game maker one who is commercially successful of how they kind of got merged together and so it's really difficult now to imagine success as a game maker that isn't commercial success not impossible like we're now I think slowly figuring that out but yes I think it just points to that kind of very limited way game making has been imagined and i find that really interesting say talking to like students or whatnot who or or aspiring game makers more broadly who think right i want to be a game developer that means i need to figure out a way to make this my full-time job and then really burn themselves into the ground just trying to make it a full-time job and it's like if you're really into music or really into poetry or really into acting or painting you wouldn't just quit your job and then try to start painting or start playing music or start acting you would be doing that stuff alongside you know part-time work in a supermarket or cafe or what have you and hope one day your craft is successful enough you'll actually make a living off it well you know having a having that difficult blend of optimism and um, cynicism that it's probably not going to happen but it could happen but like in game making that's not often how it's approached it's like well I want to be in games therefore it has to be my full-time job which can lead to all sorts of crunch and exploitate self-exploitation and just stretching yourself too thin whereas if you're like I'm just going to work at Woolies and make games on the side and see what happens there's all sorts of issues with that as well it's not necessarily easy especially if you live in a country that ties health insurance to employment and, and whatnot but like yeah I, I guess the point is just simply that even game makers themselves when they approach game making kind of have these very historically narrowed ideas of what it would what kind of success they should even be aiming for if they want to be professional or or expert or legitimate yeah and i guess the expectation of going to study a games degree and then wanting to go jump straight into a triple a company probably is somewhat misleading from actually how the video game field or field of production where the majority of game makers or game making is in very small <laughs> 
one, two, three people, Mm -hmm. uh, studios or collaborations, right? Yeah, totally. And so I have a chapter on education and it kind of draws from my interviews, but also my own experience teaching in a game design college and also just the endlessly repeated kind of, I guess, public discourses amongst game developers about the value or lack thereof of going to game school. And it's a big complicated area, but I guess the part that's interesting to me about connects back to that the narrow ways the video game field has historically been constructed and imagined is most schools market to and attract, you know, gamers who are, you know, this very narrow, very gendered aspect of people who are interested in games, interested in certain ways, who want to transition from being players of AAA games to developers of AAA games. Very very simply. And so it's not approached like learning a creative practice or learning a cultural field. It becomes approached like getting a degree to go and work in the tech industry. And indeed, a lot of the time game development is taught in kind of computer science faculties, not not in the art faculties. So again, that's interesting both in terms of how it, again, shows evidence of the limited and narrow ways we think of the, field, the video game field as a, as a cultural field. And it also just, I guess, raises questions about how we teach game making and why we teach game making. What, something I would say in kind of week one, whenever I was teaching game making, is you've enrolled in a poetry degree. Like I would just try to think poetry, and Bourdieu uses poetry as the example of maybe the most successfully autonomous cultural field because nobody makes money doing it. And like, <laughs> um, essentially, that like poetry is like so autonomous from the field of kind of power and the field of the economy. But like people know what poetry is and it does its own thing. And very few people make any money from it. So I would say you've enrolled in a poetry degree, like you've enrolled in art school kind of thing to kind of, I guess, try to shock the students into, not into just simply, you'll never make money doing this, but you need to approach it in a particular way if you want to make money from it right like what they're thinking is i will go to school i will have the skills of game making revealed to me i will give a piece of paper that proves it was revealed to me and then i will go get a job and use those skills but like you don't just like that's not how you learn music that's not how you learn acting that's not how you learn painting you learn you learn a creative craft or practice by already kind of doing it but probably not very well going to school to refine and articulate how you how you do it while also getting exposed to broader networks and broader ideas and then you keep doing it and then you graduate and then you probably still don't get paid to do it but maybe you find other work in or around that industry to use those skills and figure something out later which is exactly what i did with my creative writing undergrad which was you know i'll have a go at poetry i'll have a go at writing sci-fi did all of that while working at a supermarket and then slipped back into academia which was still using my writing skills but in a kind of adjacent way and so a lot of the discourses around game dev education become we have too many graduates for what the game industry needs which links to these very neoliberal kind of capitalist ways of thinking about what higher education is actually for, that it's just for providing the skills needed by employers to produce surplus value when maybe uh, maybe higher education should exist for like much broader reasons than that. Mm-hmm. But then of course that kind of butts up against the fact that our students kind of do need to live once and like it's very easy as like the lecturer to say just focus on your art man and then the <laughs> student still needs to pay rent student still needs to work so it does get complicated but i guess even if you want if we want our students to be successful game makers and actually make a living doing it that means letting them helping them understand that they're trying to enter a cultural field not that they're trying to enter a technological field and that that means carrying yourself in different ways as a professional like 
it doesn't just mean getting a degree and then starting doing it. It means starting doing it and then hoping for the best. Yeah, and the conclusions that you make in Chapter 7, which are things like universal basic income, housing rights, accessible healthcare, education, and other more field-specific things like adequate regulation of platform business models. These are m- Many of those aren't field-specific, yep. right? They're, they're kind of more uh, systemic um, forms of change. Totally, yeah. And like, you know, the game industry loves to talk about we need more tax breaks, we need more direct funding, and yes, those things are good within a certain capitalist paradigm. But if you just gave everyone the money and resources to not die, then, you know, more people can take risks, more people can just make games or make whatever kind of art they want or innovate. And so, you know, if you raise the rate of unemployment welfare wages or just, heaven forbid, actually have a proper universal basic income or have access to healthcare and affordable rent, that's going to do so much more for increasing innovation and experimentation in in game making and in every creative sector than any sort of just tax offset ever will and like that's you can it's why i think australia has so many cool weird indie games in recent years because while our social welfare has much to be critiqued and you know the unemployment rate hasn't gone up in 20 years or whatever there is one and you can still get relatively affordable health care if you're young and don't have chronic health conditions and so you know i think pretty sure the untitled goose game devs have talked about how several of them were just you know on unemployment payments for at least part of it, the early kind of development of that game and the same is true for various other developers who I spoke to as well that it's not that like they're just bumming around making games for fun it's like it allows them to experiment without worrying about if this game doesn't sell I'm going to die of hunger so it's important it is it is important (laughs) (laughs) and I I think it also where uh, you open the chapter uh, talking about the more recent um, 30% tax break Mm -hmm. but the for in Australia but it only applies for I think studios that earn more than 500,000 not earn more sorry are going to spend more than 500,000. Yep. And that's in comparison to something at, whereas in Ireland where they've given out artist funds so kind of like a universal basic income for artists for mm. yeah mm. yeah so I guess the broader point I try to make about I guess the funding and policy stuff and this kind of you know what I was saying right at the start where I started thinking about this work is how the commercial game industry can't exist without all this other informal activity supporting it right like for hobbyists for students and whatnot that's where new skills come from that's where new innovations come from where new ideas it's where kind of dominant tired old ideas are challenged like you need the broader field for the industries success and, and the video game industry can't exist without that broader fields labor and activities and so i guess it's like there's two different ways to read my book and i think both of them are true you know there's the marxist way of therefore we should abolish capitalism and everyone can make cool games and not have to worry about making money in in a communist utopia um <laughs> and maybe the more like maybe actually useful for like policymakers and people in the real world <laughs> is is maybe like not myself which doesn't contradict the previous one but like while we're still living under capitalism if you really if you actually want to grow your local game industry in terms of jobs in terms of money in terms of whatever you can't do that by just thinking of it as a tech industry you have to do that by thinking of it as a cultural industry underpinned by a broader cultural field so what that means is you can't just in australia learned this for hardware in the 2010s you can't just be a cheap place for international studios to come to outsource their labor or else the second somewhere else is cheaper everyone's 
inspired and then leave again. But you also can't just be indie because it's super precarious. It's very difficult to grow. Every student just starts their own company and makes the same mistakes as the last students. Everyone leaves when they hit 30 and suddenly have back pain and mortgages because you can't sustain it when you're not young unless you're rich. And so you kind of need both. You need the large studios that can suck up graduates, give them some skills, give them some actual professional experience. But then you also need to support indie studios so that those graduates five years later can go screw working at Ubisoft I'm going to go start my own thing but they're doing that in a position where they have, they're, they're not 18 for one thing they've actually worked with adults before and they're not just students make, and can actually get some mentoring because maybe people have actually hung around the industry for more than 10 years so the tax offset is great because you need the big companies you need to make it easier for companies to grow but you also need the direct funding of artists for the small scale stuff and what Australia has now and I think it happened after I wrote the book is we have I think it's a really nice structure where we have the tax offsets for spending more than half a million dollars and we have direct funding through Screen Australia for projects spending less than $500,000 and so which is a very nice both sides of a coin direct funding for small projects tax offsets for the large projects and I really really like that it needs a lot of refinement there's a lot of issues with it but like broadly the idea of direct funding small stuff tax offsetting large stuff I think you're getting the whole ecosystem I think it's really really exciting what Australia is trying to do now but where a lot of kind of funding bodies still fail in terms of especially the direct funding stuff is they still often demand these very kind of corporate criteria of like how what's your marketing strategy how's your you know give us this really extensive budget or whatever whereas if you just gave a bunch of like weird little indie devs like not even half a million well you couldn't get half a million dollars from that sorry you could get $150,000 for as long as your entire project was less than half a mil but if you give 50k or 100k to like some kid who's working on a cool little game and it just means they can quit the job at a cafe and spend one year working on this game that's where you get untitled goose games that's where you get webs that's where you get you know cult of the lambs and stuff like that and so and sure maybe one in a hundred of the games you fund will actually be one of those big successes but like your stuff it doesn't sell like the best analogy but like you're fertilizing the field you're like laying the seeds maybe is a much nicer way to say it to make like so that some of that will grow into big studios that can actually provide job security so i think that's what that's the less abolished capitalism point of the book is that even if you want to work within the capitalist paradigm of jobs and growth you still need to accept that the game industry is a cultural industry and not a technological industry and that means supporting all sorts of seemingly non-commercial activity in order to foster the kind of commercial tip of the iceberg. I think I mixed enough metaphors there. (laughs) And I think you've also just given us a lovely summary of how uh, for anyone else who hasn't started reading it yet, or it has, to now go and pick up a copy, either for free as a PDF or uh, get one through the store, right? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been, something that's been really interesting is because I keep plugging the open access version. I'm like, the book's open access, anyone can go read it. And I've had a few people be like, oh, I wish I could just read it as a real book. I'm like, no, you can do that too. You can still just go on your <laughs> bookstore of choice webpage and find an actual real copy of it and spend money on it or buy a copy on your ebook reader of choice. But if you just want some PDFs, on the website. Well, thank you, Brendan, for coming in and talking with us today and talking with me today um, on this episode of Keywords in Play. Where else can people find your work and follow you? Yeah, I mean, I'm still on Twitter because Twitter still seemingly exists for now at just brkeo or b-r-k-e-o-g-h who knows if Twitter's going to exist by the time people listen to this. I have my own website, which is also brkeo.com, which 
very rarely update, but as social media falls apart, maybe I'll get back into blogging and you can find links from Vogue to my various books and articles and whatnot. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brendan. And I wanted to say thank you, Harry. I think he's in the background there too, is he? He's right over there. I don't know if he's in the video. <laughs> Sleepy, Harry. <laughs> thank you for listening. All right. So thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digger archives at 